This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest who joined me via Skype is Danny Shapiro, author of nine books, including four memoirs, Slow Motion, Devotion, Still Writing, and her latest memoir, Hourglass. She has also written five novels. Her work has appeared in The New Yorker, Granta, The New York Times, and The L.A. Times, among others. Her new memoir, Hourglass, is a narrative about Shapiro's marriage, memory, and family. But more than anything else, it's about the passage of time and the various lives she's lived and people she's been at any moment in the continuum of her existence. This is the second time Danny Shapiro has been on First Draft. You know, my first question, I know you've written... Um, a few memoirs, and and we've talked we talked about it a little bit about the the idea of a memoir being kind of a, a moment in your life. Why sort of this this moment? I mean, I know this is this covers a whole life, and it focuses on marriage. For me, I, I actually read it as as it, an individual woman looking at time in her life, and yes, the marriage mm-hmm. was the backdrop. But you know what what added up to this at this point in your life? I'm glad that you read Hourglass that way because that's very much how I thought of it and it was my way into it. You know, I, I've been obsessed with time for years, you know, the way that time moves, the way that time plays out in our memories, the way our memory works. And I wanted to find a way and a form in which to write about that. And in a way, I mean, a lot of people have been talking about Hourglass as a memoir about marriage, and I can see that. Uh, It certainly is about marriage in a lot of ways, but to me it is at least equally about time, and it felt to me like a way to write about time, to write about what it is to be in a partnership over time, what it is to walk alongside another person over time with the idea that you're moving through time together. Uh, That beautiful... Wendell Berry phrase uh, that I use early in the book where he he describes what he calls the troubles of duration. And I thought that was so beautiful. I mean, what, you know, what are we mired in if not the troubles of duration in a way? You know, that could be a description for life, not just marriage. Um, and by troubles, he doesn't mean, you know, big capital T troubles. He means just the stuff that it is to, um, to be with uh, another person and to grow at different rates and to kind of contend with the inevitable um, conflicts and frustrations and disappointments inside of a genuinely happy relationship. I was thinking about it last night and I was thinking that in a lot of narratives that you read, time is vertical. I felt like in this, that time was horizontal, the way that you mm-hmm. were looking at mm-hmm. your life. And I'm wondering if you could comment on that. I love that you saw it that way. I I don't think of time as being on a continuum. And it's interesting because horizontal is also a continuum. It's, It's like lying it flat instead of it being sort of up and down. I found myself thinking about it as kaleidoscopic or as a kind of spiral. Uh, in my memoir, Devotion, I actually write about that a little bit, about like time being a spiral. And I think I, I came back to that in writing Hourglass. I really, I knew that there was going to be no plot in this book. Uh, I didn't know if the book would work without a plot. 
So that was terrifying to me the whole time I was writing it. But it really kind of begins and ends in the same place. The story is not about what happens, uh, you know, what happens being something that is a forward moving, you know, sort of narrative driven idea, but really about sort of the tender insides of something and the way that we, or, or, or the way that I found myself thinking about the girl I was, the young woman I was, the young couple that we were when I had started writing the book and my husband handed me these journals that I'd kept on our honeymoon. It was like, it was such a gift to discover those journals, which I had not remembered even keeping. If you had asked me, and I wrote this in the book, if you had asked me if I had kept a journal on our honeymoon, I would have said, absolutely not. I have no memory of it. And then here was the voice of this me 18 years earlier, this bride, you know, traipsing through France. And she seemed so much younger than I feel today. And and her voice almost had a, a different quality. There was a kind of an innocence to uh, her beginning that I really wanted to find a way to weave into the voice of the woman who's nearly 20 years older, who knows more of you know what then unfolds through time. Um, and I wanted those selves to be in a kind of dance with each other in a way that I think literature can do so beautifully. I mean, literature can play with time in a way that no other art form really can. And so I, I, I wanted to, I wanted to play with time that way and to see if I could create a kind of momentum to a story without there being a plot and without there being that kind of chronological vertical time. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is Danny Shapiro, author of the memoir, Hourglass. Well, one of the things that you just mentioned with your journals um, that I thought was kind of funny was that you referred to yourself in the third person. And, <laughs> and I'm wondering if that was like a future self visiting your present self when you were that young knowing that your future self would actually get more out of reading this in, at a remove. It's just kind of uncanny in a way. You're so right. It is uncanny. And I've thought a lot about that because the journal itself was a peculiar document. It was unlike anything that I had ever written before or anything that I've ever written since. I did refer to myself as simply the initial D and in the third person, and I referred to my husband as M, uh, which I actually do do in Hourglass, but that's a separate that's a separate subject. Um, and the journal itself was almost like a log or a list. I didn't write, I didn't fill it in with feelings. I wrote about what I was reading and what my husband was reading. I wrote about what we ate. And I wrote about where we went and I wrote about the hotels and the shopping and the, um, the various things we picked up along the way. I wrote about my observations of other people in restaurants and in cafes. And um, it was almost like I was writing a list for my future self to one day look at and be able to fill in 
all of the inner life and the emotional life around it instead of being um, like sort of handed it. I, I could kind of reconstruct so much of what our honeymoon was and what that time was in our lives from that log or that list. So you mentioned, you know, your various selves, and that's something that comes up in, in, in the same way that sort of you look at time, that, that there's a parallel there between how, you know, who you were at 22 um, and who you are now. And, and you write in there about, you know, somewhere inside of you, your future has already unfurled like one of those coiled up party streamers, once shiny, shaken loose, floating gracefully for a brief moment, now trampled underfoot after the party is over. And you talk about the future, who, who will you become and, and who you've been and that you're all of these things at once. And I'm just wondering, because you're standing here now with this realization, which maybe you've, you've had your whole life as you've been interested in time, how does it make you think of your future self looking back on who you are in this moment? You know, I think that brings to mind this whole idea of the continuum. You know, like in a way, there's a, there's a phrase in the book, um, you know, I'm rarely pleased with my own writing, but there was a phrase that when I wrote it, I was like, oh, I actually, I really like that, um, which was um, a moment in which all my former selves, my, my past selves stretch like, um, like a fragile chain of paper dolls. And I don't know that I've always had this sense of the self through time the way that I do now. There's a lot of solace in it. In some way, it's about wholeness. And I mean, I used to disavow or disown or be chagrined by or even mortified by my younger self. I mean, I had a pretty complicated childhood and early adulthood, and I had never reached a point where I could look back on that with a sense of wholeness. And, you know, like, yes, that was me. And that that's not, that's not separate from the me that is remembering and thinking about it. And so I would imagine or hope that a future self would have the same capacity to reach back to the me now or would want to so that there's a kind of, and I, and I don't mean for this to sound at all like uh, I'm sort of backward looking or backward thinking because it's really not that. Um, I think it has a lot more to do with a sense of being um, complete in a way. You know, we never are really, but just that idea of not being kind of a, a, a floating human being in time without the connection both to the past and to the future. It seems almost counterintuitive, but it's actually a very grounding and centering feeling. Very important too, I think, for an artist or a writer, because what we really are when we're doing our work and when we're walking through life is being as porous as we possibly can be and as much of a witness as we possibly can be of um, life around us. And I think we're better at doing this, that the more complete we are. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is Danny Shapiro, author of the memoir, Hourglass. 
One of the things that runs through this book is the idea of Alzheimer's. And I'm wondering if you could talk about it a little. You have it um, in your in-law. You write a play about it. And then you do an empathy experiment that was sort of um, the most interesting perspective of Alzheimer's I've ever read. And it could be looming for any of us. So I'm just wondering how you fit that into this narrative and if you could talk about that. I almost think it would be impossible to write a book that's so focused on memory and not have touched on um, on what it would be to lose memory. Um, but it was very personal because of my mother-in-law. And Hourglass itself came out of an essay that I had spent like a year struggling with. Um, and the essay was called The Virtual Dementia Tour, which is what you're referring to. It's this moment where my husband and I have written a play that is about Alzheimer's. And uh, because of having written it, we are part of a day-long event where there are other other kinds of you know work that's been done that is about expanding people's understanding of the disease and expanding people's empathy for both caregivers and people with the disease. And on that day, which I have to say was a day I wasn't looking forward to, I didn't want to go, it wasn't, you know, you, you really never know what's going to happen in that way. Like I've, if you had told me I could take, you know, I could have skipped the whole thing, I would have. It was happening on the campus of a pharmaceutical company in New Jersey. I mean, the whole thing was something I didn't want to do. And I was chosen and so was Michael, my husband, to do something called the Virtual Dementia Tour. And what that was, was an experiment in literally walking in the shoes of someone with dementia or Alzheimer's. So we were asked to put on these like spacesuits um, that had bungee cords attached to the sleeves and to the legs to restrict our movements. And we were asked to put on um, uh, like these little sandals that had spikes in them that mimicked the feeling of neuropathy in the feet, in this, on the soul, you know, the prickling, painful sensation on the soles of the feet. And we put on these scratched yellow goggles so we could barely see and headphones that were like blaring static and noises and sirens so we could barely hear. And then each one of us who was asked to go on the virtual dementia tour was um, led one by one, the idea being you can't go through it together, which I found very beautiful and metaphorical too, because you can't go through it together, uh, led into this room and given a series of instructions of what to do in the room. And the instructions were really simple, things like fold blanket or write a note to your family or find pills, that kind of thing. And we were told this list, each one of us had five different items that we were supposed to do. And we weren't allowed to ask for further instructions or for anything to be repeated. Um, and through the through the headphones, it was really hard to hear. I, I think I heard three out of the five of the instructions. And then really what it was that was so profound was it felt like potentially a window into how one might actually be if one were in that situation. I mean, I played by the rules. I didn't ask for any repetition of the instructions. I went in 
I was very frustrated. I couldn't remember what I was supposed to do. I finally folded the blanket. I found the pills. I wrote the note and I couldn't remember the last two instructions. And so I basically just sat there and waited for somebody to rescue me from this predicament. And other people handled it very differently. And there's, there's a passage in Hourglass about the way that my husband and I each handled it very, very differently. That for me was so poetic and powerful and true to who we are to each other uh, that I, I was trying to write an essay about it. And then in writing the essay and struggling with the essay, I finally understood that what I really needed to do and, and what I had been resisting doing was writing a book and having, you know, marriage be kind of our marriage, be the container for uh, this material and for these ideas about memory and time. And, um, and, and yeah, and it was also just so, it was so incredibly personal because I was watching my mother-in-law's decline over the period of time that I was writing. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is Danny Shapiro, author of the memoir, Hourglass. It's interesting you have a theme throughout your marriage that you're sort of living on the edge. You you describe that you don't really have retirement and you don't necessarily know where the next paycheck is coming from. And he sort of has this phrase that he always says, I'll take care of it. I'm just wondering about, you know, your faith in that. The thing that I came to really understand in writing the book, because as I said before, you know, it has no plot. It's not linear but it very much in order for it to be artful and to, you know, to, to be a book, it needed to have a shape. And I was conscious as I was writing the first draft that I needed to find that shape, which was complicated because I was writing from the middle, you know, from the middle of something. Middles don't have shapes. By definition, middles are middles. And so I kept on, as I was writing, having this very quiet thought, you know, just, you know, knowing that I needed to understand what the shape of the story was. And so at the beginning of Hourglass, where, and it actually has to do with just some pesky domestic detail, uh, M, M, my husband, says to me, I'll take care of it. And then I write, this is a part of our marriage, something I've always loved and longed to believe. And as, as I wrote those words, I knew they were important. And that refrain of I'll take care of it becomes a, a, a motif in the book. It, it repeats itself a number of times. And then about two thirds of the way through the book, through the writing of it, it was late at night and I was wide awake and he was sleeping. And it was a particularly difficult moment in terms of risk and finances and you know, what's going to happen next. And I was watching him sleep. And the thought that went through my mind was, I'll take care of it. And at that moment, first of all, in literary terms, I understood the shape of hourglass. I understood that the movement in the book was from I'll take care of it to I'll take care of it. And the reason why I understood that it was the shape of the book is because I understood something about our marriage and the way in which two people need to pass back and forth between them over time 
that sense of I can carry us for a while or I can carry us for a while. And that is certainly not only financial, it's emotional. It has to do with going through the challenging times of life together and the beautiful times of life together with that sense that somebody's got your back. Um, and, and I found myself really thinking about partners, couples, in which it's always one person. And at a certain point, that tends not to go well, or if neither person can take care of it for an extended period of time. Well, that certainly doesn't go well. And I found after I finished the book that some of the really lovely responses that I got from people who have been married a very long time, because really, you know, who am I? I've been married 18 years. It's like, yeah, that's a long time by some standards, but it's nothing by other standards. And I have friends, one friend in particular, who's been married for 60 years. And when she read an early copy of the book, that was exactly what she zeroed in on was that she said that that's so right about long marriage. And she referred to it as a hot potato. You know, she said, it's like this hot potato that you throw back and forth between you over time. And so that was just something that felt so important to me. So do you think this book is the skinniest part of the hourglass? Do you think that's what it represents? I, I, I would like to think so. Of course, we can never know. Um, but, you know, I didn't have the title while I was writing it. In fact, the entire time I was writing the entire first draft, in my mind, the title was The Virtual Dementia Tour. And I kind of had this, you know, hope that, you know, the people in my, you know, corner publishing wise would, uh, I would love that idea. I kind of secretly knew they wouldn't. <laughs> it's like the word dementia in a title. Um, actually, ultimately, it was my agent who said to me, it's not the word dementia, it's the word virtual. There's nothing virtual about this book. And as soon as she said that, I thought, Ugh, I don't have a title. And I arrived at Hourglass, which seems in retrospect, so obviously the right title for the book. But, you know, the pinching in the middle of the hourglass, in a way, is also what writing memoir is, any memoir. What the writer is always doing, no matter what the form and no matter what the content or subject matter of a memoir is, is squeezing one particular place and writing a book from that place of, you know, the me now writing about the me then. It's, it's only that moment in time uh, that the book can be written from. And so I think that there is really always a kind of like a pinching, squeezing, freezing of, of time in memoir, which is so paradoxical. But, and it's also why I think multiple memoirs uh, can be written by the same writer because it's, you're, never, you're never coming at it from the same place or the same time. So you know, I hope it's the middle. Um, I can't know it. It's the middle. My, my, my 80 year old friend who's been married 60 years. I also quote her in the book at one point, uh, when she says the future, even a second from now is an actuarial guess, um, which is something that is at once completely terrifying and, uh, strangely a source of comfort given that we can't know. So why not hurl ourselves into life with everything that we've got. You mentioned your 80-year-old friend, and, and throughout this, you sort of have quotes from other people. You have Donald Hall. I think you talk about Wendell Berry. 
And I'm just wondering how how that fit into the the structure of writing this, because you consider this a plotless book. And so in some ways, maybe there's small chunks that are that sort of add up and flow. But it seems like it was probably hard to get the order. Yeah. And and in fact, I originally in the first draft had many more quotes than ended up in the book. I had to contend with, I mean, if there's a word for like quote mania, I don't know what it is, but my own passion for the wisdom of others. And, and I actually had to, um, it was a, a pretty profound learning experience for me because I had to come to understand and my editor helped me to come to understand that there were places where I could say it better. Like I had to kind of own my own wisdom and not be a student, but be a teacher, you know, not be a younger, but be an elder. And there was one, one quote in particular fairly late in the book where she just said it was, I was quoting a poem by a poet that I admire. And she said, you can say it better, you know, go deeper, push harder. So, so that was a part of my relationship with the quotes, but also in the same way that lists ended up, you know, old lists ended up in the book and journals, small snippets from journals ended up in the book. You know, the quotes very organically found their way into the book where, um, you know, I have kept for many years as a practice, these tiny little notebooks. They're always with me when I teach. I usually have them with me uh, in, you know, when I travel, they're never far from me. And I didn't know when I first started the practice that they are called commonplace books. And into them, I would only write passages from work that um, that really pierced me and that I wanted to uh, hold on to, that I wanted to own in some way and make mine. And I'm on the third of these tiny little books that I write in in a tiny little handwriting, um, you know, very neatly, and um, in order to be able to return to, and. So it's, it wasn't surprising to me that some of those passages um, found their way into Hourglass, but it was in a very organic manner. It wasn't um, like, oh, I've just written a passage about the impossibility of romantic love, so now I'm going to go digging for you know, what someone wise once said about this. There was nothing like that in my process. It was really like I would reach a moment in the book where I would think, of a particular passage. Like early in the book, I write something about my younger self. And I remembered Joan Didion's fantastic essay on keeping a notebook and a particular passage in that essay. And I just knew exactly how to put my finger on it in my commonplace book and, you know, included it in Hourglass. So it wasn't a difficult process to know where quotes would go. The difficulty came in pulling away a lot of the quotes, because in a way, some of them had been scaffolding in the first draft that I no longer needed. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is Danny Shapiro, author of the memoir, Hourglass. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? I chose um, the opening of the short story, Once, by Grace Paley. I saw my ex-husband on the street. I was sitting on the steps of the new library. Hello, my life, I said. We had once been married for 27 years, so I felt justified. He said, 
what, what life? No life of mine. I said, okay. I don't argue when there's real disagreement. I got up and went into the library to see how much I owed them. The librarian said, $32 even, and you've owed it for 18 years. I didn't deny anything because I don't understand how time passes. I have had these books. I have often thought of them. The library is only two blocks away. My ex-husband followed me to the book, book, the book's returned desk. He interrupted the librarian who had more to tell. In many ways, he said, as I look back, I attribute the dissolution of our marriage to the fact that you never invited the Bertrams for dinner. And tell me about choosing this. Uh, well, first of all, Grace uh, Paley was a, a huge influence of mine. She was a mentor of mine when I was both a college student and a graduate student. And talk about wise people, a tremendous uh, role model for me. This story, just her concision, the longer I am at this 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 path of of being a writer, the more I'm interested in concision in finding just the right phrase, in paring away any excess language. And um, that sentence, hello, my life, I said, we had once been married for 27 years, so I felt justified. I mean, there's a world in that, in that sent in those couple of sentences, there's an entire world. Um, and yet she doesn't unpack the world or feel the need to unpack it and give all sorts of clarification and example. We, we, the reader, are allowed to um, simply rest in that sentence and know exactly what it means. Can you read something that you wrote that was difficult or tricky or changed a lot from the first draft? Yeah, I thought I would read this passage from Hourglass because it was something that I struggled with as I was writing the book and as I was wondering, what is this plotless thing? You know, am I, is it a book? Is it a lyric essay? Is it a poem? Um, have I broken up with narrative? What is memoir? And so this is the passage. I used to tell my students that in order to write memoir, or at least good memoir, the kind that will be of value to the disinterested reader, the writer has to have some distance from the material. I was quite certain that we could not write directly from our feelings, but only the memory of our feelings. How else to find the necessary ironic distance? the cool remove, how else to shape a narrative but from the insight and wisdom of retrospect. But like every fixed idea, this one has lost its hold on me as years have passed and the onrushing present, the only place from which the writer can tell the story, continues to shift along with the sands of time. Our recollections alter as we attempt to gather them. Even retrospect is immutable, perspective, a momentary figment of consciousness. Memoir freezes a moment like an insect trapped in amber. Me now, me then, this woman, that girl, it all keeps changing. And so if retrospect is an illusion, then why not attempt to tell the story as I'm inside of it, which is to say, before the story has become a story. And tell me about choosing this. Yeah, I wanted to find the language to describe what it was that I was attempting to do in the entire book itself. Um, and in a way to show the seams of 
the creative process of writing it to actually sort of turn it inside out and pretty much broadcast to the reader, this is what I'm attempting to do here. This is the attempt. And um, the idea of telling the story before the story has become a story um, was something that I, I began with. Um, uh, that, that sense of, in a way, anything that would be a smooth and linear narrative would be a lie. It, would, it wouldn't just be artful, it would be artifice, it would be untrue. And, so f- and, and it wouldn't allow the reader to enter uh, the consciousness, you know, the world of the consciousness that I was trying to create, which is the kind of work that I find myself most gravitating toward as a writer you know, in, in recent years, work, work that, um, that means sort of like entering the landscape of a consciousness, not being told a story. Where do you write? I used to write on a chaise in my office. The chaise sort of lost its magic um, after I finished my last book, and I have moved downstairs in my home into um, uh, a room that we call the library. It's just you know a room that's filled with books, and I sit in this big, comfortable chair, and I balance my laptop on my lap, and it's surely not... Um, ergonomically healthy the way that I sit there. And it's also, interestingly, not a room that has a door that closes, uh, which was something that I always needed to have. And somehow, at least at the moment, that's not what I need to have. The room is working for me. And I imagine at some point it will stop and I'll have to go somewhere else. And what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? Uh, We live in the country. I take walks. I take drives. um, I unroll my yoga mat. I, I pretty much have to leave the house if I'm, if I'm getting away from writing. And who do you show your work to first to get feedback? I show my work to my husband first. He is also a writer and he has always been my first reader. How have you dealt with rejection? The only thing to do with rejection is to move it into the rearview mirror as quickly as possible, to learn from it if there is something useful uh, to know and you know, and, and sometimes there is, sometimes there's something very useful to know, and then that's really important, but otherwise to really move forward. And what is your favorite word? Equanimity. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest who joined me via Skype was Danny Shapiro. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.